Today's episode of Duncan Holder is brought to you by Game Time. Okay, folks, time for a little pop quiz. Do you think Saints tickets are cheaper three weeks or three hours before the game? You can find the answer with Game Time, the ticket buying app that proves patience is more than just a virtue. It can save you some serious cash. Game Time is the leader in last minute tickets. Pick your deal, see the view from where you're sitting, and buy in just two taps. More than 12 million fans have downloaded the Game Time app and discovered the fastest, easiest way to get into the game. So download Game Time in the App Store or Google Play, work that clock to your advantage, and score last minute tickets. What is that when you jump around and carry on and do the who dad, who dad stuff? Who dad, you know, that's really kind of a, a fan, you know, that's, that's our, our, our chant. Duncan Holder podcast here with you, Larry Holder, Jeff Duncan, and another weekend Another successful weekend for football down here in Southeast Louisiana. Uh, it seems like at the beginning of the season, the Saints did their best to take away all of their hopes and dreams in the state of Texas. Well, Louisiana tried to do that this weekend, and they certainly did so. Of course, uh, LSU topping Florida in really theatric fashion. Saints beating the Jacksonville Jaguars in a very non-theatrical <laughs> way of going through things. And uh, Tulane, they didn't beat Florida, but they totally whipped up on UConn, and they have a big game this week. So, uh, But this podcast, of course, if you're listening to this pod, this is our freebie on a Monday, so please go jump on Apple, Spotify, uh, give us a uh, rate, review, all that good stuff. Subscribe to it as well. And so you can get all of the freebie action in our early week podcasts here on the Athletics Podcast Network. But Jeff, why don't we start off with the exciting game? Not the one I covered on Sunday, the one you covered on Saturday night uh, up in Death Valley in Baton Rouge. Of course, LSU getting the job done with high-powered offense and yet defensive prowess when they needed it and look it was a basically a game an exciting game that we all kind of figured and boy are the odds makers good or what I mean right. give me a break yeah what was it 13 and a half and LSU ends up winning by 14 yeah that game was um one of those magical Tiger Stadium games Larry I know we both covered a bunch of them over the years uh the crowd was amped uh, the funny story and the thing that um, I think you've learned and I've learned over the years about these big games at Tiger Stadium at night, uh, traveling in from New Orleans, it's actually the easiest games to get to from a traffic standpoint because all the fans go down early and tailgate all day long. So I actually left my house in uptown New Orleans at about 4.30 and got to the stadium at 6. That's how quick it was to get in because everyone was so excited about the game they were all over campus. I mean, uh, they'd been there all day long. There was no traffic. I drove right to my parking spot. Uh, just shows you the anticipation for that game. And it lived up to the billing. Uh, both time. I was very impressed. Uh, I don't know about you, but I was very impressed with Florida uh, in that game. And Will Trask, the way he played, a quarterback. I thought LSU had some pretty good coverage on a lot of those big plays that Florida was hitting. And Florida just was a little bit better on those plays. 
but they eventually wore them down. Uh, they eventually cracked them defensively. And I just thought Joe Burrow, once again, was tremendous, 21-24 against one of the best defenses in the country. And the running game got going. They ran for over 200 yards, and I don't think anybody expected that. And so I think it proved LSU's medal. They moved up accordingly in the polls now, number two in the country. And uh, I think it sets up a, a showdown, obviously, in Tuscaloosa in a few weeks uh, for the national championship. And Jeff, I'm with you in that I did not expect LSU to be able to run the football so well, but I'm also with you in that, uh, look, I, I think Trask played better than we thought, better than we maybe gave him credit for. And so this game, of course, was back and forth, score per score per score, and a little bit dicey. And so, uh, but you look at LSU's defense, and I think we can all honestly look at it and say, all right, these aren't one of the defenses, say, uh, the last time, they were ranked this high uh, in 2011. I mean, that's not the same defense they have now, but it seems like they've been opportunistic at times and, you know, making the interception uh, with Derek Stingley. Of course, that was uh, a tide changer, uh, pardon the pun, from the Alabama Crimson Tide. Nice. But, yeah, it, it, yes, uh, yeah, I did not mean to do that. So, <laughs> and Roll with so it, you look at it. <laughs> Yeah, exactly. Uh, roll with it. Oh, look at you. Oh, God. This podcast is, let's just People are now. tuning but, out uh, right now as we speak. Yes, exactly. So it's, but it, it's something that, I mean, when you get in these type of games, you know Florida's a good team and you know LSU's a good team and it could be these kind of wild and wooly games. And Jeff, I feel like the fact that they played one of these already, it's not like they played high-powered opponents throughout their schedule. But the fact that they played one of these type of games against Texas on the road and won, I, I think certainly gave them uh, confidence when they got into this point as the game rolled on. They could kind of lean that, hey, we're able to withstand some of this, come back, and then pull ahead and even win bigger than they did at Texas. Yeah, and I, I have to agree with you. It's the first time I've really looked critically at LSU's defense uh, because they just, frankly, hadn't been playing that many quality opponents. Obviously, Texas was the other. But this is the first time where you can see kinks in the armor on that defense. Their defensive line is not uh, what it's been in the past, like you like you referenced. Uh, they're going to get pushed around by top opponents. Alabama definitely is going to have an advantage in the trenches. So they've got to win with their offense and with playmaking ability of their back seven or, or their other their secondary on defense because they do have an excellent uh, secondary with Delpit and Stingley, uh, but they're just going to have to survive and, and really hope they can outscore the elite teams in the country. And right now, I think you have to have confidence they can do it with the way Joe Burrow is playing because he doesn't ever really put the ball in harm's way with his decision making. Uh, I don't think he threw. Maybe he might have thrown one ball, Larry, that had a chance of being intercepted. I mean, he just. He's so accurate. He's a lot like Breeze. I know you've made that comparison before, and it's you can see it. He's he's really quick and decisive, knows where to go with the ball, and um, right now he's playing as good as any quarterback in the country. And, Jeff, I know we, we can uh, go through some of the big-time names. We mentioned Stingley, Burrow. Of course, Jamar Chase had a big game. Uh, but if we're talking about LSU's defense up in the trenches – uh, I think we, our own Brody Miller did a really good job in kind of dissecting how LSU's offensive line stepped up to the challenge because uh, we covered that game last year in Gainesville and that offensive front, which was basically a lot of the same players outside of Ed Ingram. I mean, he played a lot 
uh, this week, this well, this past week. And when you look at that offensive front, Joe Burrow does not get the job done without them. And Clyde Edwards-Alaire doesn't run wild, and uh, and Davis doesn't be able to break off some nice runs as well without that offensive line. So, uh, and Jeff, it, it goes back to a lot of uh, the things I know you've talked about a lot, how uh, Coach O and his staff, whether it has to involve his staff or involve what's going on on the field, that offensive line is just another thing you can point to and say, okay, they've been able to coach them up, shore them up, and they're not as big of a detriment by any means as they were maybe a year ago against the top caliber teams. Yeah, if you haven't seen that story that Brody Miller did for us at The Athletic, I highly recommend it. He did a great job of breaking it down, and that was a key to the game because it it allowed LSU to be – two-dimensional on offense. They didn't have to just rely on the passing game. And um, it was surprising they were able to run it as well. I think it it helped a little bit. Florida had a couple of uh, starters that got injured in the first quarter on their defensive line and I think at linebacker. Uh, so they, they, they were missing a couple of key guys for them. And I think LSU took advantage of that. And that ability to run the ball, especially down the stretch, was huge. I mean, they had a couple of just huge holes uh, that the running backs went through. Clyde Edwards-Hilaire had a career game, and they averaged – Larry, they averaged over 10 yards a play against Florida. I think Florida came into the game ranked 11th in the country in total defense, and 10 yards a play. I mean, it's just remarkable efficiency, uh, and they just didn't have the ball very long because they'd score so quickly. And then Florida, uh, conversely, would get the ball and march on these 11, 12-play drives where they were moving the chains and really dominating time of possession – and to do that, you have to be very efficient, and Florida was. And eventually they cracked. You know, they had the turnover in the red zone, like you mentioned, and it felt like a tennis match. Who was going to break the other serve? And it finally happened that LSU got the break. And, Jeff, we talk so much about Joe Burrow and the the other skill position players, but we haven't talked a ton on, uh, this, on our Duncan Holder podcast about Clyde Edwards-Alaire. I mean, going into this season uh, – a lot of the hype was around the two young freshmen coming in. We were thinking maybe they were going to play really early right away with Ty Davis-Price and John Emery. And yet, Clyde Edwards-Alaire as, is certainly their premier back. I mean, there's no question about that. And the way he's able to run the football and then be a part of the passing game. Jeff, look, we've watched the Saints offense thrive uh, using someone like Alvin Kamara. I know the thought process for Edwards Alaire is to use him Kamara-esque, where no one's, of course, going to call him Alvin Kamara within the offense. But how impressed are you by the way that LSU has been able to take a guy who wasn't the number one back last year? You know, he was kind of the uh, 1A with uh, Nick Brissett. And he has really taken on that role, embraced that role, and been a really huge factor for LSU. Yeah, and I've always liked him. I never have understood why people maybe didn't have the the star rating of some of the other backs, but I've always thought he was a good all-around back. What's amazing about him, Larry, if you've ever interviewed him, and he's a little guy. He's he's about as big as me, I swear. He's not very big. He reminds me of like a Darren Sproles when you see him in person. But he's so quick, and he's very smart, and he knows the offense. And I think the comparison to, say, Sproles or Reggie Bush, the way the Saints use them uh, in their offense is very similar to what Joe Brady and Steve Ensminger are doing with 
uh, Edwards Alaire, and um, he's a, a huge factor for them right now because he's good in the passing game, but he's got such quick feet. He made a couple of moves on Florida defenders that were just jaw dropping in the open field, um, and I think they're in really good shape right now because Ty, uh, what's his name? Ty, I'm blanking on his name. Ty Davis Price. Yeah, Davis yes. Price. I'm sorry. He brings a whole different package to the game. He's a bigger back, powerful, and they like to bring him in a lot like the Saints used to do with, say, Mike Bell is like a closer. He comes in after they played three quarters and he just starts pounding on the defense. And then you got Emory, of course, who was one of the top backs in the country a year ago. So they've got three really good backs. Yeah, and you look at Edwards Alaire's numbers. Uh, look, he only carried the ball 13 times, but two touchdowns. 10.3 yards per average. Of course, he had the 57-yarder. But still, uh, I feel like I'm channeling my Jim Hazlitt here. You take away that 57-yard <laughs> run, and then what do you have? Well, you still have 12 carries for about 70 yards or so, 75 yards. That's really good. And I, the fact that LSU can sprinkle that in, they don't have to be pass, pass, pass all the time. I think uh, maybe that's something they were holding on to a little bit Maybe, because uh, you, you got Florida, of course, you got Mississippi State next, Auburn, then the bye, then Alabama. And maybe they really like to see this element come in because it's something else other teams are going to have to prepare for. Yeah, if they're able to run the ball uh, just effectively, Not you're not going to average 10 yards a carry in the SEC, but if they're able to just run it effectively and keep defenses honest, I think that is going to go a long way because the passing offense – is the strength of this team. Jamar Chase, I mean, you wrote about him last week. Uh, he rose to the occasion against an elite corner. Uh, Henderson on Florida is one of the top corners in the country. Uh, they basically matched him up man-to-man on Chase. Chase won his ba- share of battles against him and I think proved his medal as one of the top receivers in the country. And LSU's receiver core, even without Terrace Marshall, I think is an elite group. Uh, so that's how they're going to probably win most of their games, but they've got to be able to run the ball effectively to keep people honest. And just a heads up, they did average 9.1 yards a carry against Florida. So almost 10 against an SEC team. I, I don't think they're going to be doing that against Alabama or Auburn. I mean, those defensive fronts are are stout. Uh, and so, yeah, I don't think that's going to be the case. But Florida's was supposed to be pretty stout. So it's uh, – but it's certainly a big wrinkle. And then you mentioned Jamar Chase, seven catches, 127, two touchdowns, a 54-yarder. And he's someone who uh, look thrives in these situations. And like you said, I, I wrote about him last week and talked to a bunch of folks um, about his recruiting process. So it's funny that he uh, was committed to Florida. And uh, Jimmy Chase, Jamar's dad, said uh, he's – at this point, he's glad he didn't really know Dan Mullen too well because maybe he could have convinced Jamar to stay at Florida. But now that uh, he's at LSU, he's at the right place. And uh, look, just talking to our own draft guru, Dane Brugler, I talked with him before I wrote the story just to kind of get a little bit of NFL profile on him. And he said that as of right now, he's probably within the top four of the 2021 NFL draft class, which of course more great receivers at LSU. And then, Oh, by the way, Justin Jefferson only has 10 catches, 123 and a touchdown. And Jeff, when Terrace Marshall comes back, which will probably be in a couple weeks, that's my assumption. Uh, then you add the other element to that mix. And then they actually throw to the tight end with Thaddeus Moss. So 
Uh, it's almost like if Terrace Marshall was going to get hurt, he got hurt at the right time. And then when he comes back, you add that other weapon. And uh, I'm sure everyone's thinking, look out, Alabama. Yeah, I think they're going to be able to score on anybody. Clearly, they hit 42 points against Florida. I think that was more than their first uh, – their last – four opponents combined that scored on Florida. Now, obviously, Florida hadn't played anyone as dynamic as LSU, but I think that validated what we've seen on a weekly basis because we know that Texas, the strength of their team is not their defense. They've got a young defense. So the fact they were able to put up the points they did on Texas wasn't quite, I think, enough for national observers to go all in on LSU. I think now it's impossible to ignore what they're doing. And the transformation – of this offense in one year uh, is stunning. I mean, that's the only word I can think of. They've gone from, as Joe Burrow said, you know, stone age to the cutting edge of college football. Uh, if you're a quarterback prospect, Larry, and you watch, and they had six of them at the game on Saturday. If you're a quarterback prospect, and I'm writing about this this week, so a little tease for my column coming up, but they've changed the paradigm. They've changed the perspective of how quarterbacks are viewed at LSU. For years, no top quarterbacks would want to ever play in their system. That's why they never got an elite quarterback prospect to go there unless they were from the state of Louisiana for the most part. Um, Now, it's a whole different world. Every quarterback's going to watch LSU play, see this offense, and think, man, I want to run that thing uh, in college. And so, consequently, uh, it's changed the landscape for them recruiting-wise as well. Um, I I just don't think I've ever seen – a, a team transform as quickly as they have on on offense and at quarterback. Uh, and you have to credit Joe Brady with what he's done. It's, it's just changed the landscape for LSU. Well, you also got to credit Joe Burrow for being spectacular. 21 of 24, 293, three touchdowns, no picks. And we're used to seeing those kind of accurate performances with scores. And, of course, he's able to run the football. He's mobile when he's got to be. Yep. So, Uh, That's certainly a big element there. But, Jeff, when you look at the Heisman race, I mean, he's certainly not played his way out. He's played his way near the top. And then you you throw in the race for being number one in the country. Right now, LSU in the AP poll is number two. I think this has got to be the highest it's been since – I don't want to be wrong. Uh, Maybe 2011, 2012, they weren't there – Last year when they played, I think it was one versus three at that point, and LSU got wiped out. But you look at this, and it all kind of boils down to uh, LSU, they're in the driver's seat if they beat Alabama, and Joe Burrow, he's in the driver's seat for the Heisman if he plays well against Alabama. It's it's funny how it always comes down to that every year, it seems like. Yeah, and, and Ed Ogeron said that last week when he was asked about the Heisman and Joe Burrow. He said it's going to come down to how he plays in these big games. Well, Chalk, both games up, big games he's had so far. He's played tremendous against Texas and Florida. But let's face it, the litmus test is always going to be Alabama, and he's going to be squaring off against another Heisman candidate in Tua. So uh, you're right. It's going to be an incredible game. Uh, And I really don't think anyone stands a chance of beating LSU at Tiger Stadium. When they get these big games like they had Saturday night, uh, all the players and coaches talk about it. It's the 12th man for them. I think the energy from that crowd finally made a difference in the game in the fourth quarter. 
And it was just an electric scene there uh, after the game. Just an incredible environment, college football. Jeff, if you were an AP voter right now, would you vote LSU number one? Yes, no doubt. I mean, the resume is the strongest. I don't know why you wouldn't. Instead of going on reputation, let's go by what's happened on the field. And right now, LSU, I think Ohio State's got a very strong case as well. I mean, the way they, they played a pretty solid schedule and really been almost untouchable. But LSU, the fact that uh, they've beaten two top 10 teams, I think, and one of them on the road, uh, no one else has done that so far. I would agree when you're doing these rankings, you need to do on what you have right now, not that Clemson and Alabama and they have these reputations. I think you should go with what you see. And uh, like LSU, they were high expectations anyway, but they've uh, exceeded them so far. And so I'm with you. I think they should be number one. It's kind of why they're they're teetering on that. But the old guard's not ready to vote Alabama out of number one yet. And I would I actually sent out a, a, a tweet earlier this morning, uh, our own Matt Brown. He did uh, kind of an inside look at the polls and, and how they shake up and stack up throughout the midseason. So go check that out at The Athletic. A really good look inside the polls. And... Kudos to him. He has Tulane in his top 25. Of course, they're 26. But uh, like I said, we'll probably talk a lot more Tulane later on in the week, uh, given that LSU is probably going to beat Mississippi State by 1,000. And I'm going to be covering Tulane Memphis. I was going to be going to LSU Mississippi State. I'm going to not veer off (laughs) when I hit Jackson, and I'll go straight up to Memphis (laughs) instead. Uh, I'm going to cover that game because it's the first time Tulane – can be ranked since the end of the 98 season. I mean, this is a pretty remarkable run that we're seeing from Tulane. And so uh, we're going to be covering some of that throughout the week and leading up to it because, I mean, that's what you promised and uh, that's what we promised. And you guys are responding by subscribing, so we appreciate that. So uh, we're going to bring you the Tulane coverage. So what we'll have a bunch of that. And just a quick teaser, might as well throw it out there. I'm going to try to get a little bit of a one-on-one time with head coach Willie Fritz uh, later on this week and have it on our Thursday pod. And so uh, I'm looking forward to that. They, they're always giving us good access. So uh, I, I'm I'm, I'm going to put it at about 95% that we'll have an interview uh, with Tulane coach Willie Fritz on our Thursday pod. So, uh, of course, that one's behind the paywall. So if you want to listen, make sure you jump on and subscribe here at The Athletic. So let's Switch over to Snooze Fest. I mean, Saints-Jags. It was the greatest game that no one really wanted to watch. I wish I didn't have to. But, hey, the Saints win. And, Jeff, the storyline, it's funny how it it remains kind of the same. Saints find ways to win. We've seen this for the past three years. It was really kind of, in my eyes, the overarching element of this game. You could, of course, uh, gripe about things. You can praise things. But it doesn't matter. Uh, the Saints go in, beat Jacksonville 4-0 without Drew Brees as a starter, 5-1 and overall, and and yet not the number one seed in the NFC. What's what's going on in San Francisco, man? Come on. That, and the Saints played the 49ers later on in the season. Who'd have thunk that could be a huge matchup in playoff seedings? I wouldn't have thought that. No, I mean, I thought they would be better, but they're legit. I watched them last Monday night against the Browns, and the 49ers are big time. I mean, their defense is really good. They shut down the Rams yesterday. I think uh, that opened a lot of eyes, how they played and validated them. But I thought the Saints did exactly – I thought it was going to be exactly that kind of game. I thought they would probably be a little more uh, effective offensively. But 
uh, credit Jacksonville. I think they had a good game plan. Doug Marone knows the Saints very well. And I think Bridgewater is doing what he needs to do. And I know that sounds cliche, but he is. I mean, there were a couple times they had shot plays called and he could have taken a risk and, and, and pulled the trigger, but he's smart. He knows right now the defense is playing extremely well. They had a great game plan for Jacksonville. They had Gardner Minshew under control. And I just felt like he he's not going to make that mistake that costs his team right now. So he's playing very conservatively, but it's what needs to be done right now to win these games for the Saints. Jeff, Teddy's always going to be a topic until Drew comes back. We know that. And I feel like every week we have to say Teddy's not as bad as he is or he's not as good as he is when you play against the Bucks. I mean, he is who he is. He can kind of frustrate you with some poor passes. He can, And then two throws later, he can make a pretty throw to Mike Thomas or something like that. And so it's, it's who he is. I'd love to do my next column on just reaction on Twitter through the game. I think that would be fascinating of the people who just go absolutely bonkers in the first quarter and then fourth quarter either calm down or continue to stay bonkers and negative even though uh, they're 5-1 and one and winning football games and doing it without one of the best quarterbacks to ever play uh, in the NFL or football in general. And, and Jeff, look at his numbers, 24-36, 240, a touchdown, no pick. Uh, longest re- uh, completion was 27 yards. He took three sacks, and some of those were on him because he's holding, holding, holding the ball. Uh, but his quarterback rating is 94.7, and that's about 14 ticks higher than uh, what his average passer rating was when he was a starter in Minnesota. Look, this is just who he is. I mean, I think people have just got to understand that. And I think people mistake you and me, Jeff, of hyping up Teddy when he plays pretty well. No, we always come back with the disclaimer that it's something that he could play high one week, but that could be the outlier. And he, This is more of him coming back to who he is. And I think people just need to get over it. Win a game and just get over how well Teddy Bridgewater plays. Are you saying, Larry, that there's, it's either a crisis or a carnival with uh... – the Bridgewater reaction. That's basically. It's actually. It's actually a crisis within the carnival. I mean, it's crazy. <laughs> why? 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 I don't understand why. No, I mean it is. I, I knew that this was. I, I hate to sound like a know-it-all here, but I knew this was going to happen. I, he had that great game against the Bucks, who we now see are awful defensively. Right. I mean, this is three weeks in a row. The Bucks gave up about forty something to the Rams, who clearly are having offensive problems. Teddy lights him up, and then, uh, of course, Carolina lit him up uh, in London. Uh, so we're, the overreaction, I think, was the Bucks game. Uh, he played extremely well, but Tampa's just not very good. And you knew Jacksonville was going to be a, a, a stiffer test. And he, frankly, didn't play all that well. I mean, he had some open receivers. He, air, he tends to airmail and throw high when he misses. And I, that's a very conspicuous way to miss, and, and people see it. It's going to come back to haunt him at some point with a, a an interception it did against, uh, you know, with the Ted Ginn Jr. interception. But you're right. This is what he is. I think people overreacted last week saying he could start for half the teams in the NFL. No, I don't think he can. I think he's exactly what he needs to be, a backup quarterback on a good team, or he could be a starting quarterback 
on a lower tier team. He's probably better than some of the quarterbacks that are starting right now, but he's not what I would consider to be an elite quarterback. He's just not. I mean, we, we know what he is right now, but that's that's good enough. He's good enough with this team because this team's playing so well on defense right now. Their special teams are lights out, and they're getting you know good contributions now from uh, the running game. Uh, Jared Cook's starting to produce a little bit in the passing game, and they just need to kind of tread water, win games until Breeze gets back, and that's exactly what he's doing. And going forward, I'm curious to see – what the Saints do, or at least the workload this week for Alvin Kamara. Uh, the ankle, he was a uh, little gimpy going into the game. Sean Payton said that wasn't a big deal, but he got banged up in the first drive. Sean Payton saying after the game that uh, he twisted his knee a little bit, was able to come back to play, and he wasn't the same type of Alvin Kamara that we've seen for the last few weeks. And yet, the Saints still win. I mean, we see Latavius Murray... Uh, play his best game as a Saint, and he really should have had a touchdown pass. That blocking call or holding call on Michael Thomas was pretty dubious. I, that was shaky at best. and uh, But still, he was able to be effective. I mean, you mentioned Jared Cook. Uh, three receptions on three targets with the touchdown where Teddy threw high. I'm assuming he intended to throw high, say, hey, let's throw it up and see if Jared Cook can catch it, and he did, and so you saw that, and and Jeff, let's shift over to the defense. My goodness, this defense, we've seen it for a couple of years now, but I think it's at its peak right now. And it's not like it, it's leveling all. It, it's going to have a drop-off. You're seeing it at its peak. And, I mean, they made Gardner Minshew mania, all the poor kids wearing the mustaches and the jorts. I mean, they walked out upset yesterday out, out, out the stadium. And Minshew made him look like a rookie quarterback who was picked in the seventh round. And uh, certainly uh, pass rush, you got to give credit there. Cam Jordan with two sacks. Again, the Jaguars uh, running game, they wanted to lean on Leonard Fournette. The Saints would not let them. And they slowed down another top back. And Jeff, as we go forward, man, once Drew Brees gets back and he gets into a rhythm again, and if this defense keeps going, which I assume it will, Boy, there's a reason why everyone still points without Drew Brees that this is one of the best teams in the NFL, and it's because of their defense. Yeah, uh, here's a good stat for you, Larry. So coming in to this season, the Saints had only won one game when they'd scored in the Brees-Payton era when they'd scored 13 points or less. And that was last year, if you remember, in Carolina. I think they won 12-9 to in Carolina late in the season. Yes, 12-9. So they'd yes. won one time and out of a – of about eight, uh, 16 games, I think it was. Now they've won two of their last three games that way, 12 to 10 against the Cowboys, 13 to 6 against the Jaguars. That shows you how good their defense is playing. And I thought they used the exact same game plan that worked against Dallas uh, where they shut down the run, very similar type of offense, right? You know, play action passes off the running game. And they confused a young quarterback the same way they did with Dak Prescott how many times yesterday did Minshew like double pump, double clutch? Uh, he just was confused. The coverages, the disguises had him off uh, rhythm. And he tucked and ran a few times when he probably should have held on to it. That's what young quarterbacks tend to do. And they just basically got in his head and he was very ineffective. You know, he hit a couple passes here and there, but he never got into a rhythm. And it all started, though, with their ability to shut down the run. And that starts with just very – 
uh, efficient tackling. I mean, they just tackled really well. And what really impressed me the most was the tackling from like the secondary. I mean, guys like PJ Williams, Von Bell, Marshawn Lattimore, even Eli Apple, um, they've had their problems this year tackling. Uh, certainly in that Rams game, they were they were atrocious. Uh, but they brought their lunch pail yesterday against one of the toughest backs to tackle in the league. And um, it, it really set the table for the rest of the defensive performance. Yeah, Jeff, it seemed like that Rams game where the tackling was really an issue is now the outlier and the abnormality because before, well, maybe a little bit against the Texans, but after that, they have been stout. And I'm glad you mentioned the secondary, like corners. You don't expect corners to be sure tacklers, but Lattimore, P.J., Eli Apple, I always feel like every game I'm like, whoa, look at that tackle. And it's on like a short pass where if they miss the tackle, it's going to be at least a first down. And they're making stops consistently. Of course, Demario Davis, uh, he's Demario Davis. And you look at that defensive front. And Jeff, we talk a lot about, of course, Jordan and, and Davenport. And even though Davenport didn't have a sack yesterday, he got held twice. So that's basically a 10-yard loss as it is. So uh, he was able to get pressure. But Jeff, I think one of the most underrated signings in the NFL, and I don't think anyone's going to bring this up anytime soon, but you got to look at Malcolm Brown. I mean, he's come in and they were good against the run last year, but he really has been an upgrade at that nose tackle spot of Tyler Davison. And then I think they hit right with Shai Tuttle. On Yamada, Rankins, of course, is coming back and playing more snaps and playing well. So, but Malcolm Brown, he's never going to get the ink because he plays that that kind of dirty work job uh, at the nose tackle. But I think he's one of the most underrated free agent signings of the NFL so far. Great call, yeah. He he's been a clear upgrade over Tyler Davison, and Tyler wasn't a bad player, but Malcolm Brown anchors the interior along with On Yamada. Uh, they're just very stout inside. No one's going to run the ball and move those guys out. And they haven't really had that type of one-two punch in the middle. And then you bring in Rankins as well, who's, a, who's an excellent player. Their, their interior rotation between those three, and then you bring in Tuttle, who's you know a revelation, a guy that no one had on the radar screen when he came to camp. Uh, they just have not been this deep along the defensive line. And and we know how good Cam Jordan is and Marcus Davenport also very stout against the run. There's just – there's nowhere to go. When you watch these plays, and I watched the game again this morning, the replay, there's nowhere for Fournette to run. I mean, you just watch it. They're, they're, everybody's in their gap. Everybody's filling their lane. Here comes Von Bell or P.J. Williams unblocked from the secondary, uh, delivering a, a free hit on the running back, and they're getting – two yards on a, on a run that probably would get seven or eight against most teams. And that's where it all starts. And then by the time they get to third down, uh, they're able to kind of scheme up uh, different looks. And uh, right now, I think the entire staff, especially the defensive staff, everyone is just coaching their tails off. Uh, and I think it all stems to the what happened with this team when they lost Drew Brees. I think it created that kind of rallying point where everybody had to raise their game. And right now, the whole team – has responded. And I think it's funny that Sean Payton gave a, a few cracks at Jacksonville in his post-game press conference, really unprompted. He mentioned how he knew that this might be a difficult game for them because of where they're playing in Jacksonville, where it's not exactly 
uh, blowing the roof off of the open-aired stadium, the TIAA Bank, whatever the hell it's called, and that they were able to play with energy and and play well. And I think that you could see that, and that was evident. And then with the defense, how he said and told the players after the game that they could have played eight quarters and thought Jacksonville would not have scored a touchdown. And when do you hear Sean Payton talk that salty about his defense? He can tell that this is arguably the best defense he's ever been a part of and coaching. And I think it feels like he could probably afford to take some chances or or, or even be able to play a little bit conservative, like whichever route he wants to take offensively, because he can finally unequivocally lean on that unit, and it's pretty remarkable to see. That's Yeah, great point. I think there was a, a time in the game yesterday where they had like a fourth and two or three near midfield, and in past years, I think he might have gone for it. And instead, he punted the ball away. They've got a great punter. Their punt coverage is outstanding. Uh, he knows he can lean on his special teams in defense, and they're not going to give anything up. And what, what they've really eliminated this year, like it happened the same way last year, right, Larry? A opening game last year, Bucks totally uh, strafed them through the air. Same thing happened this year with with the Texans. They gave up a ton of big plays, and then they just cons- consistently tweak away on the, the problems that they have in the film room, I'm sure, and in film study on the practice field. And they just tighten things up, and they're just not giving up those big explosive plays now. Uh, this is two years in a row we've seen the same kind of progress from game one uh, throughout the season. And they really took DJ Shark out of the equation. And uh, just from hearing from some of the, the quotes after the game, that they didn't necessarily have someone follow DJ Shark, uh, but uh, they – really catered the coverage to him and they took him out. He's been a big play threat and they really eliminated him. And I bring that up just because another week, another big time game for Marshawn Lattimore. I think we can say he's back. I mean, uh, three weeks in a row, uh, he had three pass breakups. Of course, one was an interception and he is back and that is huge. And I think you see guys like Eli Apple, playing well and PJ Williams playing well even Marcus Williams uh, had some nice plays even though one probably was pass interference that is never going to get overturned coaches quit challenging that you're going to lose every time Uh, but still you're seeing great coverage throughout the secondary and it all goes hand in hand and uh, when they're locked in quarterback has to hold the ball or or when they're pressured uh, quarterbacks make bad throws so I think you're seeing that but again Got to mention Lattimore. I mean, he is playing at that Pro Bowl level right now. When he plays that way, it changes the whole defense because he's able to take out the primary receiving threat, and it just has a trickle-down effect on the rest of the defense. And you're right. He's definitely back. He made some big-time plays yesterday in critical, like, third-down situations that, uh, you know, made uh, resulted in punts that could have been first downs. And, uh, look, I thought yesterday in watching the game again – that uh, referee Jerome Boger and his crew allowed both teams to play. Uh, you know, we, we always have a critical eye towards officiating. There were five total penalties in the whole game. Uh, you know, that's a way I like to see a game called. I think both sides got away with a lot of stuff holding on, on the lines and in the secondary, the Saints do a ton of holding. They got called a couple times, 
But in a game like that, the Saints secondary is going to play well because they're being allowed to play and they're very handsy back there. And I thought that contributed to how well they were able to to defend in coverage. And, um, you know, I, I like the way that game was called because I think you let the players decide it and let them adjust within the game. And uh, I thought the Saints coverage was just locked down downfield. You could see so many times where the pass rush didn't get there. Minshew had time, but there was literally no one open uh, because of the way they were effectively guarding uh, downfield. And Jeff, you mentioned Morstead and say someone like Justin Hardy, who gets down there and, you know, gets the ball to two and it, these things never get the pub they deserve, but they're game changers. And when you have someone like that and you've got the way that uh, some of the, the team, the special teams guys say, even like uh, Chauncey Gardner Johnson plays well in special teams. And you got like a JT Gray and Craig Robertson and all these guys within the special teams unit, but specifically Hardy, who's able to get down and be the gunner, make a fair catch, uh, make the player make a fair catch or pin them back in these type of games. And in, in the way the saints have to play right now, they have been critical and been playing well, uh, basically the entire season. Yeah, that that early punt sequence where uh, I think it was um, Westbrook elected to let the ball bounce and Morstead did one of those classic, uh, you know, kill the ball. He drops it in there like a lawn dart, you know, inside the 10-yard line and it just dies. That was a huge play because Jacksonville was buried deep inside their five. I think they were on about the two. They never got it first down to get any breathing room. They end up punting. The Saints get a nice little return from Deontay Harris. And I think they started that drive at the 36 or so, and it got them a field goal out of it. Uh, those, those, you know, Sean Payton talks about that all the time about um, uh, ball control, uh, you know, managing the, the the game the way they do it. Uh, you know, they they're just playing complementary football right now, and a lot of it comes down to how well their special teams is playing because their field position. Uh, they're just controlling the game. I never felt like they were out of control of that game yesterday, and that's been the case now about four weeks in a row. I, I, you know, I, I think the last time the Saints trailed, the only time the Saints trailed by double figures all year was obviously in the loss to the Rams, but also the um, the game against uh, Houston. I think they were down 14-3 to early. But since then, even when they've been behind, Larry, it's only been like a field goal or maybe 7-3. to so they've always been able to stay on schedule, play within themselves on offense, and never really have to get into a catch-up mode. And I think that's been critical also to their success with Bridgewater as they haven't had to rely on him to make a big comeback yet. No doubt about it. So, all right, that's going to wrap up this edition of the Duncan Holder Podcast on the Athletics Podcast Network. Of course, you can listen to our Monday pods on Apple, Spotify, wherever you get your uh, podcasts, of course, so go rate, review, subscribe, do all that. Appreciate all the kind words and ratings already, so keep them coming in. And, of course, we'll have our next one coming out on Thursday. That will be behind the Athletics paywall. So, again, uh, we're going to be talking a lot of uh, Tulane, Memphis, Saints, Bears, uh, Mississippi State, LSU, uh, talking a ton about that, and good segue with as far as our college coverage look we've got two of the best in the business uh with Stuart Mandel and Bruce Feldman and go check out their podcast the audible with Stu and Bruce they discuss the latest in college football interviewing the biggest names and giving you insight into the most relevant topics you won't find anywhere else from signing 
day to the national championship. Bruce and Stu have you covered year round. And I can tell you uh, that uh, Tulane offensive coordinator Will Hall appreciates Bruce Feldman because he has been on top of him <laughs> as far as <laughs> no covering doubt. him and, and pointing him out as one of the top assistants in the country. And they are continuing to do so. So again, check out our coverage uh, of everything New Orleans related. Uh, of course, our own Will Guillory. He has not sung the Rummel fight song because Rummel slapped around Brother Martin. And I'm telling you, he will have his recorded Rummel Raider fight song behind the paywall because that is the quality content our listeners deserve, Jeff. Will Guillory singing the Rummel fight song that sounds eerily similar to LSU's fight song. I know you can't wait for that. I'm looking forward to it. Uh, I'm glad that he is paying up on the bet. Give him credit for not welching. And I uh, look forward to hearing it. Uh, that was a huge win for the Rumble Raiders. Although I, I have to say, Larry, I have some friends that are wired in in the high school community. And there's just a reputation, I should say, that uh, Rumble has right now in the high school community with uh, maybe recruiting. I don't know. Have you heard any of those? Well, maybe we discuss that on the Thursday pod. I never understand recruiting. They're a private school, a Catholic school. You can recruit mm-hmm. students to come okay. to your school. Okay. What do you want me to tell you? I see. Huh. I see how it's going. I guess John Curtis has never done that. <laughs> right, sure. On that note, all right, that's going to wrap up this pod uh, for Jeff Duncan. I'm Larry Older. And, of course, our intrepid producer, Danielle. Appreciate the time, as always, dealing with us. So, all right, come back next week. Well, next week. Later on this week on Thursday to check out our next Dunk and Holder podcast. So, for Jeff, I'm Larry. Thanks for joining us.